listening to Wake Up and Read the Labels, your guide to eating simple and feeling good. If you want to eat clean and feel your best, guess what? You're in the right place. Each week, we talk about ingredients that may be holding you back from feeling your best. We also talk to some brands that are going against the grain and actually using real ingredients we can recognize. Plus, we're sharing stories with people who are just like you, who actually woke up and read the labels. Welcome to Wake Up and Read the Labels podcast. If any of you out there listening have had breast implants and you're having any symptoms such as fatigue, joint pain, brain fog, dry eyes, many other health concerns, but you don't have an official medical diagnosis, this conversation may bring you some hope today. I'm going to be joined by board certified plastic surgeon, Dr. Robert Whitfield. He's in Austin, Texas. He's been named the breast implant illness expert due to his extensive experience of successfully treating patients with breast implant complications. Good morning and welcome, Dr. Whitfield. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Of course. You know, I I deal with a lot of clients myself who come to me with these kind of the symptoms and they don't really know what's going on because they're running around to their doctors and nobody can figure it out. And it seems like they have this like cluster of symptoms that don't really fit into a classic disease diagnosis. So let's kind of dive into what exactly is breast implant illness and what are the classic symptoms someone's looking for? Well, sure. I think for your listeners, it's complicated for both the client and for the practitioner. Breast implant illness to me is a cascade of just chronic inflammation in the Breast implant is just one component of it. So if you sit down and listen to patients, just like you've listened to patients describe all their different symptoms, that essentially affect every system of the body. If you have a, a client in front of you as a general practitioner of any variety who sits down with their patient and the patient says they have anxiety and depression and they have brain fog and they have shortness of breath and they have joint pain and they have nerve pain and they have bloating and swelling or diarrhea and constipation, like that provider doesn't know what to do with that patient. Mm -hmm. That patient doesn't fall into a classic pattern for a diagnosis to them. It ends up being a problem. And I get a lot of patients who then go to a lot of specialists because the primary doctor doesn't know exactly what is going on with them and they need help. So they send them out to a specialist for one of those myriad of problems. yeah, And then that specialist says, well, I don't know what's going on with this. We can use this medication. Typically, that may be if you go to a room, it may be Plaquenil or methotrexate or a steroid or, or something like that. If it's a skin condition, you're going to go see a derm and you're going to get an antibiotic or steroid or both. And the problem with all these, when you take them at face value is, Regardless of what that practitioner does to help that patient with that specific problem, it doesn't treat the underlying problem. And the other underlying problem is so much inflammation that at the end, their body, which is you know trying to deal with whatever the situation is, will not turn off the signal that stimulates inflammation, so it becomes chronic. And chronic inflammation ends up affecting everything. Absolutely. So... Did breast implants, that become like super popular in the 90s and it's taken this long to see people 
in this chronic illness state and starting to be aware that something's wrong or does breast cancer illness, can it happen immediately? Like how long does these symptoms take to pop up? When does it start? Yeah, that's a great question. I see patients and I had a patient from El Paso this week mm-hmm. who had symptoms right away after an augmentation. And I would say that's less common. Okay. I typically see people 5, 10, 15 years out. They may have developed symptoms due to an exposure. I have a lot of people get exposed to mold and that seemingly tips them over. I have a lot of people have or suffer a stressor in their life, death of a a family member or some other very, very life-altering event. Something has to create more of an issue for them typically. Now, there are a lot of underlying things in patients that are both genetic from their detox and their hormone metabolism, since we're talking about women, that do affect them and make it more complicated. Okay, so it's back to real quick, I'm curious, did breast implants become really popular in the 90s? Or has it just always been? Breast implants started in the 60s. The 60s, okay. Yeah, so 70s, 80s, 90s. Okay, because I do feel like the people that I'm running into who are dealing with these kind of symptoms and have had breast implants are women that have had implants for, you know, 15, 20 years. And now they're saying, I have all these problems and I don't know what's gone on. So I'm even here to try to like connect the two for them. So is breast cancer illness, you're saying it's not a new thing, like it's always been as long as breast implants have been here? So breast implant illness whether you had it related to a reconstruction from cancer or you had them for cosmetic purposes, I've had okay. both patient populations develop symptoms. And I'm my background is oncology. So I mostly took care of breast cancer patients for about 20 years and did their reconstructions. And if we had somebody who had implant-based problems, I would typically convert them from a implant reconstruction to an autologous reconstruction using tissue from their abdomen called the DIEP free flap. That was my specialty. I did that many, many times. And in the back of my head, I always knew that if I took out an implant that potentially was causing a problem for the patient and did their reconstruction with their own tissue, if in fact the source was the implant, that would resolve that component. Now, there's always other components. You know, I think yeah. not to underscore the how bad the environment is or the air you breathe or the water you drink or the food you eat. So those things have and play a huge role in your inflammation. So Mm -hmm. I always say the same thing. Whether it's a hip, knee, or breast implant, an implant just plays one role in the cascade of inflammation. There are a lot of other factors involved. Yeah, we're totally exposed to so many toxins. I tell people we're like a bucket with holes in it, or we're a bucket, our body is a bucket, and so you are getting exposure to different toxins in your environment, in your food, in even the containers that your food and water comes in. And so when you get too many, I say that the bucket starts to overspill. And that's when you start seeing all these symptoms. So tell me this, is there a certain type of implant that causes this? Meaning, I know there's different types of implants. And so is it one that makes you more susceptible to breast cancer illness? Or is it just, it's kind of variety all over? Yeah, so breast implant illness, I've seen in patients that have smooth implants or textured implants, round implants or shaped implants. So virtually every single implant manufactured from almost every manufacturer around the world, I've had some level of experience with, Mm -hmm. whether they're from Asia, Europe, Australia, South America, it doesn't matter. 
the United States, of course, I've taken out implants of all those manufacturers from patients of mine. So I don't want to say that it's one particular variety. The textured devices are more closely associated with breast implant-associated anaplastic large cell lymphoma, which is a cancer. That's known. So those are more closely associated with that. They were recalled. They were taken off the European market several years ago. And I just took one of those out of a patient this week. So those are they're their own kind of issue because of the texturing of the device. So that, if you want to think about what is more irritating or inflammatory, if we're talking about inflammation, is something that's rough, that's inside your body. Mm-hmm. Something foreign. That has more contact with your tissue. Okay. How do you test for breast implant illness? Yeah, so there's not one specific test. Basically, when I do my workup, I use genetic testing, toxicity testing, food sensitivity testing, hormone testing, and gut microbiome testing, just to get a very, very broad picture of a patient's level of inflammation. About 35% of the patients in my audit will have biofilm. The biofilm is a bacterial contaminant. The bacterial contaminant most commonly found is Cutibacterium acnes in my audit. And hopefully our results will be published here this year. Hopefully I have an IRB approved study for the review of my cases. So that's a real entity. So when someone writes after surgery that they had resolution of their symptoms and everything's better in a week, I typically think those are the folks who were suffering from biofilm. And so about a third of the time that would happen in my series. And then about two thirds of the time, people will have a staggered recovery depending on maybe how much inflammation they had to begin with, how limited their detox ability is, how bad their diet is, other factors. And so we're trying to with our, the way we try to do it differently is we try to, in the beginning, identify what the drivers are and eliminate those prior to surgery to lower their baseline level of inflammation so that we can do their case. And I'm interested in always expediting a surgical patient's recovery. I'd like to dive into that too. Exactly. Like take me through, okay, a patient comes in and they realize that they are a candidate for breast implant illness. And so you're working hard to get their inflammation markers down before surgery. Does everyone, first of all, need surgery to remove it? Or can there be other things that can be done? And what happens when they're ready to get it? The population coming to me has already chosen typically to have their implants removed. So I'm not really swaying people one way or the other. They're typically asking me, in my experience, like they're done with their implants or they feel like their implants are causing them symptoms. And they're asking me, in my experience, what's the best situation? What should I do? In the workup, we'll identify a bunch of things like we discussed. It may be mold exposure. It may be an environmental exposure, like you mentioned, maybe phthalates or organophosphates or glyphosphates or MEPs or BPA, something else is causing them additional problems. So we'll work to lower their inflammation with our baseline supplementation. And then we have a partnership with CellCore to put people through phase one detox who need that. Detox. Because mm-hmm. if I'm going to do certain aspects of surgeries, like people come to me from around the country for fat transfers simultaneously. And a lot of things are written about fat transfers that are inaccurate. A fat transfer, I think, is a very valuable tool. And I have women who don't want breast implant augmentation. They just want to use their own fat. So they'll come to me and they'll have a fat transfer. 
to the breast. And fat transfers have been shown not to increase the incidence of cancer because it's not the same cell line. Fat is mesenchymal, uh, breast cancer is epithelial cancer. So it's not the same cell line, so it doesn't cause cancer. It also does not cause radiographic abnormalities when put in the position where fat belongs. Fat belongs above the breast and beneath the skin of the chest and, and breast area, of course. So not in the, the breast gland itself. And you know, long-term, it has good viability. I think if we all think back to our 20-something, 30-something selves, things are a little bit different. Mm-hmm. And those have to do with what? You know, typically your hormonal levels, your diet, your level of exercise. And so I try to get everybody back to that version of themselves to put them in the best position to heal from both surgery itself. And if they want a fat transfer, I'm sure the audience has heard of the Brazilian butt lift. So that group of patients is typically younger. They're having large volume fat transfers to the buttocks. And that's being placed in the tissue above the butt muscle because that's the safest place to put it. And they're putting large volumes in. Well, what's the difference? Typically, the patient's younger, so their hormones are are in better balance. They haven't typically had any kind of changes due to children. A lot of people, their hormones go off after kids. And then the volume that they place there is significantly larger than I would ever do in a breast. So why does it work? Well, typically because they're younger, even if they don't have a great diet, they're still younger, their hormones are in better balance, and they can heal more easily and have a nice result. What would you advise someone that is considering breast implants? I get asked this question a fair amount. Can I, like, working backwards, I can tell you who's more susceptible to breast implant illness through genetic testing. Let's do it. Okay. So if genetic testing reveals that you have limitations in your vitamin D metabolism, methylation pathways antioxidant pathways, and what's called uh, glucuronidation, or just everybody's probably heard of glutathione as it relates to beauty treatments or aging. So glutathione metabolism, we'll just make it simple. If you have limitations in three or four of those, then you're going to be more susceptible to breast implant illness, which basically means you don't detox well. So it doesn't really matter that it's a breast implant. It could be hip implant, knee implant, dental implant, whatever. It doesn't really matter. My point being is I would prefer to practice individualized or more precision medicine than what I was taught in medical school because the genome project was not complete when I was in medical school. And I often tell people, like, I'm older than Google is. So they'll come in and say, oh, I Googled this. I'm like, that's great. I've been around a lot longer than Google. So you can ask me the question. I'll give you the answer. I've got plenty of experience related to patient care and outcomes. So I think moving forward, you know, we would prefer to, as providers of care, know someone's personal genetics. So if I know Jen's genetics, I will advise her based on that and her diet and her environment. And then she makes the decision what she wants to do. I'm not going to tell anybody they can't do something because people are always going to do what they want to do. But then you can explain risks and benefits a little bit more simply and more plainly so the patient can understand. Yeah, more personalized, holistic, whole person approach. Dr. Whitfield, that brings me to what do you recommend pre-op to lower inflammation? So along the lines of our conversation with genetics, if someone has difficulty from their personal genetics detoxing, we've curated our supplements to do two things. One, be absorbed easily through the oral cavity. So most of my supplements have oral liposomal formulations but they're all curated to help lower inflammation and improve your detox 
prior to surgery or just if you want to lower your inflammation in general. Perfect. Okay, good to know. Where do they find that? So these can all be found on my store, Dr. Rob's Solutions at Shopify. Okay, so how how exactly do your patients feel the moment they get them removed, like within the first week? Are they all noticing a difference in their inflammation and their health, or does that is that something that takes time to heal? Depends on where they start. Okay. So our program is trying to level up all those patients so that the experience is a week over week, month over month improvement. And I tell everybody the same thing. Like surgical patients, biggest problem is they're not patient. So if you had a problem for many, many years and I operate on you, I didn't solve it in a moment in the operating room. So as it relates to cancer care, we're trying to save somebody's life by removing something that's really going to affect them. In this instance, you know, I'm doing an explant with or without a lift, with or without a fat transfer at one time, trying to remove what I hope is the source of a a real driver of their inflammation and get them on the path to being as well as possible. Okay, great. Tell me, are these women who have had breast implants, they get breast implant illness, they get it removed, are they still achieving their level of confidence with their physical look? Or is that something that becomes an insecurity to them then? Or does it vary? could vary. Well, I would say there's a lot of psychosocial issues that go into this in terms of appearance and why they first got an augmentation and Mm -hmm. maybe there's really not happy with the appearance maybe they were bullied maybe they were kind of body shamed or there's all sorts of things that go into it the list yeah and i mean there's books been written about this called phenomenon where it's your playbook right what gave you why you think about your breast this way and it's a very complicated issue. I find it more complicated than even the breast cancer patients I've taken care of, although that's a very, very complicated problem and you can't understate its importance for image. My sister's a breast cancer survivor, but there just seems to be so much psychosocial attachment with this particular problem. And then when they go to come in and have an explant, they may have had other surgeries too. I have a lot of patients who've had additional surgeries after their initial surgery, either for changing up in size or going down in size or having a lift or there was a problem or whatever. I mean, they've invested a lot into this process and then finally come to this conclusion that this, in fact, is a problem why they don't feel well. So then they feel all sorts of remorse about this whole process of doing this And many of them have kids who are daughters. And then they're like, I don't want my daughter to do this. And there's all those issues that, I mean, there's a lot going on when someone comes in to have a chat with me. We're women. We're multi-layered for sure. Tell me this. Are there any safe alternatives to breast lifts? Or is it just like a one-stop shop? They're just all there to achieve the same thing. You don't have to worry about any illnesses after that. You only have to worry about surgery risk. How's that work? So are you talking about a breast lift without an augmentation? Yes. Speaking from a mom that has two kids that would love a breast lift, never been interested in breast implants, but I'm like, as you get older, you want them to go back up. In my practice, I've spent a lot of time and effort researching and developing protocols for non-invasive skin tightening and minimally invasive skin tightening. And non-invasive skin tightening 
there's different modalities. There's ultrasound modalities like Softwave. There are radio frequency modalities, and those come from a company that I use called InMode. And then the, the so those are all non-invasive. Interesting. And then there are invasive modalities that are minimally invasive from InMode, and you can use different radio frequency probes that go underneath the skin, and they'll help tighten the skin, but they don't remove skin. Mm. So those are minimally invasive, but don't remove skin. So you're trying to stimulate more collagen production, more elastin production, and that'll give you more tightening. And then finally, I have a product called Elicor, which actually removes skin without leaving a scar. So it can be used, it's FDA approved for the face, but I've used it off-label all over the body. And I use it as part of my no-cut facelift, which removes or can remove about two square inches from your face. But I've done that for the breast area, the arms, the knees, hip thigh area. That's really cool. Is that something that's not commonly used, like all these non-invasive ways of doing a breast lift? Is that newer? Yeah, I was the 14th person in the country to have it. Okay. How long have you been doing that? It's been FDA approved since Q1 of 22. I got it finally around Q3, 22. Okay, cool. Good to know. I might check that out one day. Okay, so I know you mentioned facelift. You've mentioned implant removal. You've mentioned breast lifts, Brazilian butt. What else do you guys do? So I really focus my niche is doing explants. Explants themselves require general anesthesia. Things that we do under local in the office are faces, facial rejuvenation, like my no-cut facelift, neck lifts, we uh, harvest stem cells under local in the office from your adipose tissue, process them, and so we can use them on the faces that we treat and or the breast or arms. And then we do fat transfers under local. And that's what we concentrate, or I specifically do in the office. And then we have all of the facial rejuve, like I said, with Softwave and Morpheus 8, Evoke and Evolve, and Pretty much anything that I feel like is best in class minimally invasively, I have for you. Okay. So if someone's listening, they're like, I like Dr. Woodfield's approach. I want to have a conversation with him. How should they begin? Yeah. So if you're looking to have a consultation regarding an explant, you can visit breastimplantillnessexpert.com. If you're just looking for our minimally invasive and non-invasive approaches for cosmetic facial rejuvenation, breast rejuvenation, body contouring, and then please go to drrobertwhitfield.com and they'll have contact forms for each of those. And you can follow us on Instagram using the same handles. Perfect. So breast implant illness expert on Instagram. Is that correct? Correct. All right, Dr. Whitfield. It's been amazing talking to you. I love your approach. And when I'm ready to lift my boobs without being invasive, I'm going to give you a call. Okay. All right. <laughs> It's great to meet you. I appreciate your time and know that we'll talk soon, okay? Okay. See ya. Thanks for listening to this episode of Wake Up and Read the Labels. If you like this episode, guess what? We want you to share it. We'd love that. Share it with a friend and leave us a review. You can subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or really wherever you're listening to your podcast. For more information, visit us at wakeupandreadthelabels.com. Thank you.